0: One of the most memorable and symbolic images that I've seen of Jesus Christ was a statue, basically I saw a picture of it, a statue outside of Christ the King Church in San Diego. Nearly life-size plaster statue is not unlike other ones found at any church or Catholic cemetery, except for one glaring omission. Around 1980, vandals damaged the statue, cutting off both of Christ's hands. Rather than repair the statue, Jesuit Father Robert Fambrini, pastor at the time, placed a sign at the base to reflect the mission of the people of God. I have no hands but yours, the sign says. The sign was later replaced by a permanent plaque. Father Fambrini told, um, said that he received offers to pay for the statue's repair, but he turned them all down. A prayer attributed to St. Teresa of Avila uses this metaphor, and I quote it. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Now, I'm convinced that every believer ought to have a mental picture of this statue in their minds, The statue of Christ without hands should be at the forefront of all of our minds because theologically, I think that most of us know this to be true. But how often do we really consider ourselves in reality to be the hands by which Christ builds his church? Now, don't misread the application. We should never consider Christ as powerless without us. The simple fact of the matter is, is that he doesn't need us to promote his gospel at all, but he chose us to do just that. When we don't participate in that plan, we are in essence presenting to the world a crippled Jesus. In the midst of all of that, guess what else happens? We lose our joy. We lose our joy as Christians. Our true joy is not derived from this world. It's not a result of our circumstances, but by being personally acquainted with the Savior, personally active in His work, and personally associated with His people. In a word, it is to be in fellowship. Fellowship, that's a buzzword. At least it was an old-school buzzword. I don't think they call it fellowship anymore. I think the new word now is community. This fellowship is a triangular relationship. None of these things stand alone. True joy is stabilized by the tripod of true fellowship with God and with his people. John put it well in 1 John 1, verses 3 and 4. What we have seen and heard we announce to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See the connection? The triangular relationship between us and God and us and others and others and us and others and God, and it's all rooted in the proclamation of the gospel, and that brings us full joy. Paul also put it very well in the midst of his warm and intimate greeting to the Philippian church. Paul exhibits this attitude of joy that true fellowship in Christ brings out. It's the attitude that every pastor has when fellowship is functioning properly in the church. When fellowship functions correctly, it furthers the faith. Amen? It's contagious. That's exactly what Paul is interested in throughout chapter 1 of this letter to the Philippians. In verses 3 through 8, he overflows with the joy of fellowship in the gospel. If you're not there, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Last week, as I suggested to you, the joyful promotion of the gospel involves a proper perspective on the work of the gospel. And we looked at the first two verses of chapter one. We need to see ourselves as servants and as saints, organized and operating in the power of God's grace and peace. This week, in the following verses, Paul takes us one step beyond that. And he says that the joyful promotion of the gospel involves our personal participation in the work. It's not just enough to have a good perspective about it. You need to be personally in partnership with God and with each other in the work. Paul understood the idea that we are truly Jesus' hands. Follow along with me as I read verses 3 to 8 in this uh, letter to the Philippians. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's just stop there. It's pretty unbelievable that Paul would even be thinking of these people in Philippi. I mean, think of his situation just for a moment. He's 800 miles away in a prison cell. Awaiting Roman trial, one in which he did not expect to fare very well. And he hadn't seen these people in Philippi for at least 10 to 15 years. I well, think about it, 10 to 15 years. It's not like he took a couple of weeks off and then he came back and he saw them again. He hadn't seen them for 10 to 15 years. That's a long time. A lot can happen in 10 to 15 years. Thinking back on his experience in Philippi might have only brought him sorrow. I mean, after all, he was illegally arrested, humiliated before the people, beaten, placed in the stocks, and left in jail. That was his recollection. But even in the course of all that, this whole letter resounds with a tone of happiness and joy. Lydia one of his first converts, as we saw last week, and her household was converted in his first visit. He remembered the demon-possessed slave girl that was now set free. The jailer and all his household had found Christ. Again, for those of you that weren't here last week, Acts 16 is the backstory for this. No matter how bad the circumstances might have been, Paul saw the good that God had worked in and through every point of his suffering. The gospel was promoted, and that brought him joy. He may have been separated from these people physically being in jail, but he was close to them spiritually. He knew it, and they knew it. In every remembrance that he had of these people, he was thankful, and he offered prayer on their behalf. Why? Because after 10-plus years and all he'd been through, the people were still engaged in the faith. They were still engaged. They had personally participated in the spreading of the gospel from the first day that he preached it to them until now. Think about when you came to Christ, if you're a believer. Are you still that participating in the, that much in participation in the spread of the gospel as you were, let's say, 10 to 15 years ago when you first got saved? these people were. And that's why Paul could commend them. And it gave him great joy and exhibited itself in a continual habit of commendation. Verse 3 again. I thank my God always in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. must have been from the south. It says you all twice in this context. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now listen, if you were in jail, think about it. If you were in jail, what sort of letter would you be writing to your Christian friends? Would it focus on the personal difficulties of being relegated to a cold, dark, damp cell? Would you mention the poor food, cramped quarters, lonely isolation? See, Paul had a a lot to think about in prison. Not to mention his impending trial in Rome. Yet he never forgot these people. You don't get that. You get this warm, intimate tone from this letter. His mind kept going back to them. There's not a single hint of self pity or personal discouragement or sober introspection in this entire letter of Philippians. On the contrary, it's just the opposite. He's thinking of them, not himself. He's thinking of them and the joy of their partnership in Christ with him. Personal participation in the work of spreading the gospel will exhibit a constant mindfulness of others, especially those that you are in partnership with. And it also engenders a thankful spirit for them. The characteristics of such a habit will be a lot like Paul's. Notice the pattern of his life. Get your fingers ready. I want you to scan with me through a number of scriptures here just to get the idea. Set the pattern straight here. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly unceasing I, I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Move ahead now. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to go fast. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have. For all the saints. Move to the right again and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of our God and Father. 2 Thessalonians, again, verse 1. Three, chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Second Timothy, chapter 1. Are you getting a pattern here? You seeing it? Verse 3. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. One more, Philemon. Right after Titus, verse 4. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Now, I know that was tedious to go through all those scriptures, but did you see what was going on there? Thankfulness, prayerfulness, joy, rooted in their participation in the gospel with him. Whenever Paul thought of his converts, he was characterized by constant thankfulness. Constant thankfulness. Paul was in, the, in this habit of being thankful for those who were personally in partnership with him in the work of the gospel. One of the greatest joys that a minister of the gospel can have is to see those that he has ministered to walking and growing in the Lord. Is that right? Amen? The Apostle John expressed this so well in a few simple words. In fact, to be able to constantly repeat this verse is every pastor's desire. It's definitely mine. In 3 John 4, we read these words, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Now, Put a blank space in the place of my children. It is my greatest joy to fill that blank with every one of your names. I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of, fill in your name, walking in the truth. Can you put your name in there? When we're personally participating in the work of the gospel, we become a great source of joy to someone. To others, to the person who led us to the Lord, to our parents, to our pastor, and especially to the Lord Jesus himself. Now ask yourself this question, scary question. Maybe you don't even care. Am I the kind of person that brings joy and thankfulness to my pastor's heart and mind when he thinks of me? Ask yourself that question. I ask myself that question as well. It's scary when I think about it. Do I bring a spirit of joy and thankfulness when our elders or our other three pastors think of me? Or are they just like, oh, here he comes again? How about the ministry leaders that are under my charge? Or the ministry leaders that are under your charge? How do they feel when they think about you? Are you a source of joy to them? See, Paul was constantly thankful for his whole remembrance of the Philippian church, not just bits and pieces of it, not just the good times, the high points, but his entire recollection of them, according to this text. Why? Because they had participated in the work of the gospel at the beginning, and they never slacked off. They kept on doing it. 10, 15 years later... And he not only exhibited constant thankfulness for them, but also, according to verse 4 here, continuing prayerfulness, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. As Paul remembered them, they became a source of joy to him and the subject of great prayer. Notice the repetition of you and you all in this passage. Paul was concerned about each one of them and prayed for their needs, Someone has said these words, said, talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. When we bring people's names to God in prayer, that's even better than talking to others for Him. I got a letter, a little card in the mail. It was interesting. It was from a former church that I used to attend, the only other church that I attended as a believer before I became pastor here, the church that actually supported me and my wife and sent us through Bible college and even supported us here when I was pastor here for the first few years. I got a letter from them, a card from some woman, and she wrote, handwritten note. On Sunday, our pastor read to us some very sad numbers regarding churches closing dwindling numbers of church attendees and discouragement rampant among pastors, resulting in much unhappiness after sharing the information with us, our pastor then suggested that our church undertake a new mission, contacting pastors of nearby churches, not for financial support for us, but to notify you of our prayerful support for you and your ministry. Then our pastor asked for a volunteer to get this endeavor going, and that is why you are hearing from me today. I am therefore writing to let you know that henceforth you will be remembered in prayer as we seek to compile a list of pastors who will be brought to the Lord by name, in capital letters. If I do nothing else, my hope is that you will begin to feel extra encouragement from today on. Our pastor will take the list of those whom I have contacted, copy the list, and personally hand the list to our church members, asking them to remember you in prayer during their morning devotionals. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Margaret Moore Jacobs put it this way. She said, to live in prayer together is to walk in love together. Simply stated, they were mutually tied to one another by their common bond in the Lord, these Philippians. They had strong family ties. Paul exhibited constant thankfulness and continuing prayerfulness for this church, and it was all due to one thing. Verse 5, their consistent partnership. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, And this word participation here in the New American Standard is the word rich in meaning. It's actually the word for fellowship. It's the word for fellowship. The biblical term fellowship goes much deeper than our shallow use of the term. It doesn't refer to coffee and donuts after the service or to a church picnic down at Camp Berea. It's not another word for the local church even. Oh, I go to that fellowship or this fellowship. The word here refers to the close partnership that they experienced with Paul in both the acceptance of the gospel when Paul first preached it to them and their continuing work in spreading it around. This is a word that Paul used more often than any other writer of Scripture, this word for fellowship. He wrote of the fellowship of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 5. The fellowship of the Spirit, in chapter 2, verse 1, and in 2 Corinthians. He wrote of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings in chapter 3, verse 10. We'll get to that later on. And the fellowship of the faith, the true Christian fellowship, is more than just gathering in a church, folks. It's way more than that. It's a personal communion and a partnership in something. You know what that something is? The Philippians' partnership was rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's partnership in Christ is what it is. And it was constant, and it was communal. They all shared the same spirit, privileges, and grace of the gospel as well as participating in its promotion together. It may also refer to their financial fellowship as well because later on we find that the Philippians had sent financial help to Paul on a few occasions. Let me ask you a question. How are you specifically and individually participating in the fellowship of your faith? How are you doing it? Every single one of us has a purpose and a place In Christ's church, in this church, do you know what yours is? You know what your purpose is here? Your place here? I'm going to encourage you to take some time this week and reacquaint yourselves with these texts of Scripture. If you're taking notes, write them down. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. I know some of you are thinking, I know what those are. I've read them a hundred times. It's all the texts regarding the spiritual gifts that we've been given. But I'm going to urge you, I don't care if you have been a believer for 30 years, take the time to reacquaint yourselves with those texts of Scriptures because these are the texts that speak of why God has placed you in a body. Every believer has been given a gift for the common good of the church, amen? Amen. You ought to be finding out what that gift is if you don't know what it is and discovering opportunities to use it if you haven't yet or using it if you haven't yet. If you're not there yet, Romans chapter 12, verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You see what Paul is saying? We're members of one another. You've got a gift. Figure out what it is and use it. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now skip to verse 12. For even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body... Though they are many, are one body, so is Christ. For by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, let's say it, but many, many. Verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members suffer. Rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Just imagine how your parents would feel, your spouse, your kids. If on the occasion of your birthday, when the gifts are given, you just took them out and said, oh, thank you, laid them aside, and never attempted to open them out or find out what what it was. How do you think it would make them feel? How would you feel if your child did that to you? And yet, some Christians never make the effort to find out what gifts they've been given. Never put them to work and then excuse themselves from partnering with Christ in His work by saying things like, I'm not really qualified. I'm not capable. No, you're right. You're not. That's why God gave you a spiritual gift. You've heard me say it before, but He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called right? Our personal participation in the gospel is expected from the day we believe in Christ until the day we meet Jesus. The Philippians' consistency in that participation brought Paul immense personal joy and caused him to commend them highly. It also underscored something else. It underscored his confident hope in the security of their salvation. Look at verse 6 of Philippians 1. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? I love that verse. Because of their continuing growth in the faith exhibited through their constant participation, Paul was absolutely convinced in his mind and in his heart of their eternal salvation. The language here is absolutely weighty. The word being confident here means to be fully and completely convinced, persuaded. This verse ought to be memorized by every single Christian. It is our confident hope. And contrary to one young boy's definition, hope is not defined as wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. That's not the biblical definition of hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. The promise of Scripture is very clear. He who began a good work in you, say it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Every word in that verse is absolutely important. First of all, what is the good work? Let's identify that. I believe Paul is referring to their salvation. He's not referring to their financial gift that was being collected. Because why would Paul say he's going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus if it was just a gift he was collecting? No I believe he's talking about their salvation. It's the context of this whole text. And you know if you've been in any kind of small group with me at all, context determines meaning, right? In anything. What is the good work? It's their salvation. Now, I know some who don't agree, but if there ever was a verse that promised the security of our salvation, this is it. Notice, our salvation is God's work, it's not ours. He started it. He who began a good work in you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, and not by works. It's a gift of God so that we won't boast that we had anything to do with it. That's the Russ Noir paraphrase. Okay? He started it. Secondly, he continues it. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2 in verse 13. It says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's in you working out his will. He started it. He continues it, and that is something we need to remember. Once God brings us into His family, He doesn't just leave us on our own as orphans, does He? He gives us the Holy Spirit of promise. He gives us the ability and the effective energy through His Spirit to do His will. And the word the Holy Spirit directed Paul to use here, translated work in this text is where we get our word energy from. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And we need to get that through our heads. As one man said, too many churches have begun in the Spirit and are trying to perfect themselves in the flesh. That was the problem in the Galatian church, remember? Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Paul says this, let me ask you this one question, Galatians. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be, he says, after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? We must never forget that just as our redemption was God's work in the beginning, so is the process of our sanctification. All that means is becoming holy. The consummation of our salvation. Becoming conformed to the image of Christ. If our redemption was God's work, so is all of that progress, right? God started it. He continued it. And finally, verse 6 says, he will bring it to completion. For I'm confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the word perfect here means to bring something to its end goal, to see it through to the very end. You get it? Make sense? Several years ago, one of the astronauts who walked on the moon was asked in an interview, what did you think as you stood on the moon and looked back at the earth? This is what his reply was. I remembered how the spacecraft was built by the lowest bidder. As Christians, we can rejoice in the work that the work of our salvation did not go to the lowest bidder. Rather, it was performed by an infinite God. There will never be any deficiency found in his work, folks. Our salvation is as sure as the architect, the author, and the finisher himself. And who is that architect? You tell me. It's the sovereign triune God. Sovereign triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father will bring his work to completion in every true believer, and nothing in this life or after death will prevent the accomplishment of that work. Nothing. Shall separate us from the love of Christ, which is in love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, right? Read Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? But here's the crux of the issue in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said these words very clearly He said, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Do you hear what he's saying to us? If you couldn't do anything to get your salvation, neither can you do anything to lose your salvation. Because once you've got it, God says you've got it. That's my belief. I believe that's what the Scripture teaches. The whole ball of wax depends entirely on God who is able to keep us until that day. And he will keep us until that day, according to this verse. Sure, we have choices to make. No question about it. Our responsibility is very heavy to obey God. God says, you must obey me. He who obeys me, he's the one that I love. We'll make our abode in him. Our obedience is the outward proof that we are indeed saved. But it does not in any way merit our salvation. Our our obedience does not merit our salvation. Now, some people reject this view because they think it gives a person to live licentiously any way they want to. But Paul addressed this very clearly in Romans chapter 6. Just look at Romans chapter 6 really quickly. Romans chapter 6. In fact, some people actually... Paul asks the rhetorical question, well, if grace is so great, then what shall we say then in verse 1 of chapter 6? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? What does verse 2 say? Absolutely not. Paul says, may it never be. Couldn't use stronger language against it. How shall we who died to sin when we came to Christ still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, now mark this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. What's he saying? That when we get saved we become perfect and we no longer sin? That's not what done away with means here. The word for done away here means to render ineffective, powerless, impotent. In other words, we don't have to obey that anymore. It has no power over us. The Holy Spirit has power over us if we allow him to. I read something this week in, in, as I was studying for this passage. And it just caused me to think. I thought it was great. And it, it's a good reminder for us. Let me tell you the wrong way to read these stories. This writer says, I think that sometimes we read the Bible and we think everybody we read about is just totally different from us. Stained glass saints, right? Right? I think we believe that Lydia got converted and never was racked with doubt or fear again. We think that the slave girl came to know Christ and never struggled with her bitterness, anger or ability to forgive again. We think that the duty-bound jailer converted and then immediately became so filled with the Holy Spirit that he floated around in Shekinah glory, converting the rest of the Roman legion there in Philippi. We think that. Subtly, I think we do. But it's not true. The author says, Paul says to the Philippians that to live a life worthy of the gospel means standing together as one striving in one mind for what's ahead. Implicitly, we see that the Philippian church was not a perfect church. In fact, the gospel is commended when we can admit that we aren't perfect, even after we're saved. This is purely speculation, he says, but do you suppose that there's a chance that as the church in Philippi grew, Lydia starts to struggle with pride? She's got a big house. She was wealthy. She funds a big part of what's going on in the church, donates a lot of money. There's a possibility that over time she could become quite the control freak. If you know the CEO type, it's possible that she might think her ideas for how the church ought to run are the only ideas. You think that might be the case? What about the slave girl? Do you suppose that as she gets older, she might have some relationship issues? Do you think that perhaps she might struggle with trusting people, particularly men? Do you think that our blue-collar, XGI jailer might need the Lord to soften his heart and warm him up a little bit? Maybe he struggles with being gruff and handling everyone like they've got thick skin of a soldier or a prisoner. Maybe it's stuff like that that caused Paul to write this verse, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he's going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, living a life worthy of the gospel does not mean pretending to be perfect. It means relying on the one who makes us perfect. It means fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, and say it, perfecter of our faith. He's going to do it. The scripture teaches that if you are a, truly a believer, your life is going to change. That's the evidence of God working in you. Paul was very confident in the security of the Philippians' salvation because of their changed lives and their partnership in the gospel. Their lives had changed drastically, and that in, in and of itself promoted the gospel. The fact that they changed. Someone has said there's no greater advertisement for the gospel than a truly transformed life. Now, if you profess to believe in Jesus Christ and your life hasn't changed, you need to do some serious soul searching. Because the promise is clear. If he began a good work of faith in you, he will be actively working in your life all the way until the day that Christ comes to get you. See, Paul believed firmly in the final perseverance of the saints, but he also believed that it was only the true saints who finally persevere. He had these Philippians continually on his mind, and he was confident in their salvation, but he also had them in his heart. And when we personally share in the work of the gospel, it not only engenders a continual habit of commendation and a confident hope about salvation, but it also finally shows us a concerned heart of compassion. Look at verse seven. In eight, for it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Verse eight, for God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Look, sincere love of fellow Christians is not something easily disguised. It's not. But how often are we willing to show our love for one another? Instead of being on each other's minds and being in each other's hearts, as Paul says here, I know lots of Christians who talk more about other Christians getting on their nerves, not in their hearts. You see, the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love is supposed to be a blessing, not a burden. First John chapter 3, verse 14 says this, We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. The one who does not love remains in death. There's a good indication that you haven't crossed over, that you're not truly a believer if you don't love. The love Paul had for his brethren was the kind of love that looks out for the other person. He viewed his imprisonment and his chains or shackles and his defense and confirmation of the gospel before the Roman court as beneficial to the Philippians. And we're going to see that later on in the letter. Paul's opinion was that all Christians were on trial along with him because the outcome of the trial would affect every single one of them. They were co-sharers in the grace that Paul received in his imprisonment. And he not only had a concerned heart for the Philippians, but he had a compassionate heart for them as well. And only God knew the depth of Paul's love for his fellow partners in the work. And he uses this term affection, meaning this gut feeling for them. In fact, his affection for them, he doesn't even claim it as his own. It was not his love channeled through Christ, but rather Christ's love channeled through him. He loved them with all the love that Christ had for them, and he would die for them if need be. You know anyone that loves you like that? Because we all need that kind of love, don't we? When we're personally yielded to God, we can show that kind of love to other people. Of all the one another's that are listed in the New Testament, one of them it stands out above all. It's the most repeated one. You know what it is? Love one another. And that can only happen when we let God do his good work in us. Christians who practice the love of Christ experience the joy. That's what Paul's saying. Both love and joy are the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's fruit of the Spirit. So when others view your Christian life, what's their reaction? Does it result in their commendation? Does it cause people to be confident that God is really working in and through you? Does it show a heart of concern and compassion? How do you think the Apostle Paul would view your personal participation in the gospel? What do your fellow Christians see? What do your fellow Christians see in you? And what does your neighbor think? These are all things we have to wrestle with in our minds. Jeff West wrote this poignant story that I want to close with entitled, Your Neighbor, which, sad to say, is often commonly all too true. But take this to heart as I take it to heart. You know me. I'm the fellow that takes care of your house when you go on vacation. Sometimes we cook out together on Saturday nights and the kids play in the yard. Our wives are good friends. They drink coffee together, trade recipes, carpool the children. We talk together often about football and politics and inflation. We share a lot of the same ambition and goals. Sometimes we share the same frustrations, disappointments. We're a lot alike, me and you. Both good men. We want the best for our families. We determine to stand against adversity, to try to persevere. We have ideals that we cling to, just as a child clings to an outstretched hand. But sometimes, you seem to have more strength than I do. On Sunday morning, I may be in the yard watering the grass, and you drive by with all your family, all of you dressed in your Sunday best, and you wave at me. And I wave back, knowing that where you're going, but I don't know why you're going. Sometimes it seems that your life is different from mine. Our wives have talked about it, but you and I, we're scared to mention it. There's a lot about you that I don't know. But there's this emptiness in my life, a void that I just can't seem to fill. No matter how hard I try, It's not solved by the casual and infrequent invitation to revival or some special event. I need desperately to be answered, to be comforted, to know. And I need somebody to tell me. But we go on, and I don't mention it because some unknown fear prevents me, and you don't mention it because some unknown power binds you. We laugh together. We joke. We share. But not the important things. No, never the important things. Maybe someday. Maybe never. I'm your neighbor, and I don't know Jesus. If that's what your neighbor thinks, if that's what my neighbor thinks, what do you suppose Jesus thinks? Let's pray. I want to close this with the prayer of Peter Marshall from some years ago. I thought it was very apropos. He was the chaplain of the United States Senate a long time ago, but he had a way with words when he prayed. Make them your own, O oh Lord, our God. Even at this moment, as we come blundering into Your presence in prayer, we're haunted by memories of duties unperformed. Promptings disobeyed and beckonings ignored. Opportunities to be kind knocked on the door of our hearts and we went weeping away. We're ashamed, O Lord, and tired of failure. If you're drawing us close now, come nearer still, Lord, till selfishness is burned out within us and our wills lose their weakness in union with your own. We ask it sincerely in the name of Christ, amen.